1: looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
2: This week and next week, we're going to talk about the messiness of Christ through his trials obviously through his torture and crucifixion until we get to Resurrection Sunday when we can celebrate why he did all of that for us so that we could have eternal life, all that he went through. So while it is important that he died on the cross and he rose again, that is the epicenter of our faith. We have to know that he gave himself on the cross, but he gave himself before the cross. In fact, we were in the mind of God before we were born. He knew we would fall. He already had the plan of salvation designed, and he launched it there in the garden. And so all of that happened as we move forward. So God is a very giving God in the person of Christ for us on the cross, and it began with that. So today, we're in the section of scripture that talks about his trials. And yet I have to say that a little bit um, carefully because John, although I believe he was very much an eyewitness, it's very evident in the things that we're going to read in this portion of scripture, he did not record all the trials that Jesus Christ went through. Now when I use the word formal trials, I would like to put the word trials in quotation marks because while they might be looked upon as formal, they still weren't all legal trials that he did. Now, there's different ways to approach the trials. One set of trial would be referred to as the religious trial. And the other side would be the civil trial. We could say a little bit more carefully, and that would be the Jewish trial. And the other would be maybe the, the Roman leadership trial that went on. Some people would say, well, there was only those two, but underneath are different phases of it. And that would be true because they all fit underneath different umbrellas. If you look at the one that came from the Roman perspective, you're going to find that it began with Pilate, then he handed him over to Herod, and then it went back to Pilate, so there was different trials that would happen there. When it was the religious trial, it began with um, Annas, who was referred to as the high priest. He was the high priest. We learned last week that he was the machine maker of the high priest, and that religious machinery that went on, but technically it was Caiaphas who was the high priest at that time that year, as it says. So Jesus went from Annas... And then he went to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then the next morning to validate all that went on, he went back to the Jewish leadership again, and that trial started and ended very quickly. And so there was like two major sections, three phases of it, and that would be the trial. Now, when you hear all of that, there's different ways the different groups will per- perceive Christ going through all of this. One group perceives Christ this way, that he was a Jewish sage, that really had a lot of wonderful pithy statements often quoting from their Jewish writings and he was highly moralistic as he would teach but unfortunately at the end people didn't like what he had to say they didn't like him so he died but the good news is he launched another one of our multiple religions in the world so we kind of give him some credit as he fits into the plan of, of maybe um, studying the world religions and that's one way to look at it the second way people look, often look at it is they see Jesus. Yeah, he did all of that, but he was more than that. He was a real rabble-rouser. If you find wherever he goes, there was people that seemed to rise up and have problems. And only a few times people were really blessed, but later on they left him. So he was some of them, someone would be known as an insurrectionist. And so finally he got his due because um, they had to squash him for what he did. Now, I know you could look at that through your eyes to see maybe Christ was like that. But if you look at Christ through the eyes of Scripture and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, you will really see more of Christ, of really who He was. We'll learn next week and the week following that really the Jews couldn't crucify Him, couldn't kill Him, couldn't do the death deal, so passed Him on over to the Romans. And the Romans could, but at the very end, they didn't. He didn't die because a spear was put in His side, like other people that hung on the cross that died. We know that... Jesus himself said, no man takes my life, I lay it down, I take it myself. And so he truly willed himself to death. He was commander of all that he was doing for the very purpose in mind to bring glory to him from eternity past to eternity future. So he was in control of everything. And so that's another reason we want to look at Christ. Now oddly enough, in the midst of all this mess we're going to look at, there's looking at Christ in His wonderful majesty, because there is majesty in this mess. Now, we talked about that emu pit for just a moment, and I don't want to beat that illustration, but in the midst of all that smoke and burnt wood and all that grime and grease, there still was meat there. And when we're in the kitchen and we have all this stuff going on, out of all of that mess, we brought food and we were able to enjoy it, but it was all there anyway. So in the midst of all this mess, I want you to know that Jesus Christ was still Lord of Lords and King of Kings. As he was then doing his saviorhood, responsibility, job, privilege, desire, gift to you and me. So there is still great value in what he did. And I don't want you to see him as some whipped puppy that didn't make it. I want you to see him as almighty God who was still in his majesty at that wonderful time. Now, this whole time in Christ's life really accentuates even more what I like to refer to as contrasts. Now, if you want to do it in a very simple term, you have the contrast of who Jesus is and the contrast of who we are. That's true. There's a difference between the two. And that might satisfy some of the youngest of children. But I really believe there's a whole lot more than that. What you're really seeing is the greatness and the majesty of Almighty God, the very perfection of Christ, And then you look upon man as his very worst, the despicable, depraved, wicked man. And you see that contrast as this is going on. So in the midst of our teaching this week and next week, and then we celebrate his resurrection the following week, I want you to see it as that. A writer by the name of John MacArthur has a paragraph out that I wanted to read to you to kind of help you capture again that while I'm going through some of the trials with you today, you will pick up a little bit more and see the... um, the behind the scenes inner tension that was going on. In a paragraph, it goes like this. He writes The trials of the Lord Jesus Christ are history's most egregious miscarriage of justice. In them, the friend of sinners, which would be Jesus, faced the hatred of sinners. The judge of all the earth was arraigned before petty human judges. The exalted Lord of glory was humiliated by being mocked, spit on, and beaten. The Holy and Righteous One was treated as a vile sinner. The One who is truth was impugned by evil liars. Now even that is nothing more than a little seed that can grow into a huge contrast between the two. And so yes, we are on the side of the contrast of the vile sinner. And yes, we desperately need the Savior. And so as we look at who Christ is, we look at not just some wonderful, pithy Jewish sage or someone who is going to be some great ruler someday but against the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is our own personal forever Savior by what he's done. So let's go back to the passage now and remind us again where we are and where we've been. We spent a lot of time where Jesus was teaching his 11 disciples because one had run off already, Judas, and then he prayed for them in John 17 and now he is leaving that location and he's heading over now towards Jerusalem and when he does, he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane which means Olive Press and we talked about that last week. I encourage you to get the, uh, the tape or the CD. Verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, and we could say and prayed as well, because he did that, he went forth with the disciples over the ravine of the Kidron Valley there where there was a great garden. And that garden was Gethsemane in which he entered with his disciples. Judas knew he would be there already because they often went to that place. It was a quiet place. It was a place that was away from distraction. And specifically at this time, I'm sure it not only brought back memories for Christ... I know he knows all things, but that moment of just reflecting on all that went on, but also a time to get him away from the, the mob of the people because something very dramatic was about to happen. While he was there, the background on other Gospels was saying how that the uh, disciples fell asleep while he urged them to pray, and Jesus still stayed awake, and then off in the distance he heard and saw some light flickering, and what was coming at him was the Roman soldiers along with the temple police that Judas was able to uh, coerce... Co- conjole, get into the mob scene, and bring them on over to where Jesus was. Oddly enough, there was no need to do that. Jesus was the peace, so there was no to bring, reason to bring swords. He's the light of the world. He didn't need to, they didn't need to bring light. He wasn't going to run from him. In fact, the passage says he actually went forth out to them. Again, he was already giving his life. He was bringing himself into that. For this, he, this was the time appointed to him, as it says. He was appointed to be born at this time to do this. So he went out to them. And so let's go over just four aspects of trials. Now, these are not all of the six trials I mentioned to you. In fact, when I talk about Peter specifically, that's not one of the official trials, but it is a trial that uh, Jesus was put on by Peter in the way he acted, and we'll see that in a moment. Let's go over number one. We covered it last week, so I'll go over it quickly. Jesus was before the Roman soldiers, and so you know these Roman soldiers were lean, mean, killing and fighting machines. And at that time when Jesus came to them, or came in front of those Roman soldiers, he then says, Who do you look for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, the passage says. And this is what is so remarkable. And he says, I am he. That's interesting. In the Greek, it just says, I am, which is now referred to, I am the great I am, I am God. And we can expand it through other scripture to imply I am God in the flesh. I am he. And that very statement, by that very word, there was so much power in his word. Remember, he just spoke and the heavens were created. Everything was created by Christ and for Christ. Those Roman soldiers just blew back and fell down. Now, in the passage, you're going to see that he said, Who do you ask for again? Who are you seeking for? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am the one you're looking for. I believe he's doing it just to emphasize again as these guys are now getting up from falling down. There's no need for them to fall down. Jesus didn't have bad breath. He didn't yell at them. He just spoke the word. Now, that tells me that he can overpower anyone at any time that he wants. That is giving you a little window into knowing that nothing happened apart from him permitting it. He was also sending a silent signal, I think, to them that, yeah, you came to get me. But let me just remind you who's still in control here because I blew you down just with two words. I am. And that did it. The second thing that's interesting here is that while that was going on, there was another commotion. Peter then jumps to the scene, he whips out his sword, only two of the guys had swords, he was one of them, and he goes after the head, in my opinion, of one of the players there, and this time it had to be Malchus, which was one of the slaves, servants of the leaders there, and as he ducked, he took off the ear. After I shared that with the group, you all last week, one dear brother of mine that's here, he said, you know what, I think that was one of the last physical acts that Jesus did other than his crucifixion to show his love, and he really did, and when he did that, he really was protecting two groups. He protected, first of all, I believe, Peter. Because when he was protecting Peter at the time, Peter then could have been you know, taken away because he was being violent. He was assaulting someone and maybe even had attempted murder going on. And that had been the end of Peter. In addition, remember what he said, who are you seeking? I'm seeking Jesus. Now. I am. Let these guys go. He was protecting them so they do not have to be brought into any type of trial, any kind of misjustice. He was protecting them. So as I look at Christ, again, I know what he did on the cross. We're going to have a wonderful beginning of that next Sunday and the following Sunday at the resurrection and all of that. But I want you to know, again, he had you and me in the persons of Peter and the other ten guys there in mind. So I want you to know, whatever you're going through, God either prescribes it or he permits it, but he is ultimately in control. Now, that in itself is an entire sermon. I, I don't mean why God loves evil and allows evil and suffering in the world. That's a great study. I wish you could have been with us the last uh, three or four weeks in the uh, Sunday school class upstairs. But I do want to say this. Whatever evil and suffering that you might go through, the next question is, is how am I going to respond to that? And this gives us the opportunity to show to the world that we are cut after a different cloth. This allows the world to see that we are so different than what the world has to offer in when we go through suffering and pain. You know, when that happens our way, they're looking at us. And the greatest way we can do that is to respond. Now watch this. The response that we can give is the, is, as Christians is the only response that is sustainable. Now, I know there are a lot of other good do-gooders that have sacrificed their life, jumped on this, did all that, suffered all this, and tried to make some good out of it. Just go to Amazon.com and read all the books and inspirational stories. There are tons of them out there. I get all of that. But at the end of all of that, very few, if any, probably none, give true and authentic glory to the Lord. We who are Christians, we have the ability to sustain when we're in suffering because of Christ. Because, first of all, when we trusted Christ as Savior, we become a partaker of His divine nature. Something miraculous, we can't always understand it or fully explain it, we become a new person in Christ. That doesn't mean we don't sin any longer, but it does mean we have now God in us, Christ in us, the Spirit in us, all the hope of glory. With Him also comes the Holy Spirit. So we not only have His nature, but we have God, the Holy Spirit within us, and that's the empowerment part. Now the beauty of all of that, we also have access to fruit of the Spirit, which is where I'm going with this. So one of the greatest ways that we can show to the world when we go through a time of suffering is to look at the world, look at our suffering, and dig into Jesus and experience His fruit, beginning with, when we are hated, we love we have joy, we have peace, we have gentleness. And here's a word we don't use very often, and that would be long-suffering. And that would be another word to say we have patience and perseverance that goes together for a long time while we suffer, and we still do it with that spirit of love, joy, peace, gentleness. And that only comes from the Lord, and that's our greatest way to show, watch this, that Jesus Christ empowers us, that Jesus Christ commands and he says, you can go this far and no farther. Think of Job. At the same time, you know that Jesus Christ will protect us to the level that he wants to protect us. And at the very end, no matter what happens to our outer life, our inner life still has eternal life, which then we get to go to heaven. Now, do I hear a witness on that, folks? Now, that's what we're looking at. This great Christ in the midst of this mess is doing all of this for us, still knowing that his head is pointed to a horrible crucifixion and then the cross well then we looked at Jesus before the religious courts we talked a little bit about that a moment ago that he went before Annas and Annas asked him a bunch of questions it was completely out of order he threw up his hands and realized that, you know what I need to do I need to we're going to take this thing now to Caiaphas he's the one that can take this a step further so Jesus then is carted off to Caiaphas which now we get to the material for today What I want to talk about today is Jesus before Peter. And when I talk about that, we've mentioned a little bit about it. So if you look at the first part about it, we go back to the garden again. Remember, Simon Peter is in the garden. He wields the sword. He lops off the ear. Jesus puts the ear back on. He heals them, etc. Now, from the time that they were in the garden, they are taken away to Annas. And then he sent, they, because they're following him. But then you have Jesus taken off to Annas and then off to Caiaphas. Now, I know this is a lot of historical data for you. So let me try to make it more clear. We are getting ready to celebrate Easter this month, these weeks, and then finally on the 20th. I I get all of that. But I want us to know that we could celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday, every single day because that is the epicenter of our faith. So we might refer to it as Easter, but it's really resurrection Sunday. And it's because he rose from the grave and he's alive forevermore. And we place our faith in him. We now are in Christ and we have that same resurrection experience. That's why he could say, even though you die, you can live if you believe in me, because like I am the resurrection the life. I'm the model of resurrection. You believe in me, you too will die and resurrect again. So we can celebrate him every day. So even though we're going through this technical stuff right here, I want you to celebrate every single detail is important for us to know about Christ. And let me also encourage you, don't just get it out of John. Go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and get a symphony, surround sound, technicolor if I can say that, and get this picture of who Jesus is so you get as much as God's data that he wants you to have. The rest, Hollywood can go ahead and make up their own stories and be very careful that we don't follow those stories and we get too far away from the truth of scripture. And perhaps he left that out because he wanted us to capture this this amount, and let the rest of it just kind of sit there. This is what he wants us to have. So back to this again. This data is important to show you again how much he loves you. So back to Peter. So now what happens is Peter is following along. Remember, he's a swashbuckling disciple, and he's now following this little entourage that is taking uh, Jesus up to Caiaphas. So if you will, pick it up, if you will, now at verse 15. And here's what you read at verse 15. It starts out by saying, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now keep that in mind. I'm going to speak about that in a moment. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and he entered in with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So he went into a court where the high priest uh, existed or lived. It is believed that he was there for uh, the ruling of the, the Jewish people doing the priestly duty that he needed to do. And then it also says a very interesting phrase. But Peter was standing at the door outside... Probably because he wasn't invited in or brought in with Jesus. But this other disciple could go in, who was known to the high priest. And he went out then and he spoke to the doorkeeper. And he had the privilege or opportunity then to bring Peter in to the scene of what was going on. Let's stop there for a moment. I often wondered who would be this other disciple. There's a lot of different data out there to give you um, some suggestions of who it is. I'm not going to go through all of that today. But I would like you to know my belief that this would be John my primary reason to believe that this would be Johnny is first of all when John referred to himself in Scripture he had also talked about it being the disciple that isn't named or that other disciple and he, when he wanted to name a disciple he named a disciple and so for himself he would leave that off because he never named himself in that so we believe that he was there the second reason is that there is so much um, details in this message of what we're reading here we're going to find that only an eyewitness can do that. And none of the other people that are speculated have been this other disciple were anywhere a part of this in any other writing other than John. So John would be the one that would fit this. But that wasn't enough for me. So I dug a little deeper. And I found this to be fascinating. It is believed that fishermen, that we like to say those dumb, ignorant disciple fishermen, that there may be some that they're not too smart and all they do is, you know, bring in fish. But those that had a business and had people working for them and they had a bigger crowd and they're working together, that was a pretty big business. And often it wasn't just, I catch the fish so I eat. No, I catch the fish so I eat, but I also have enough to sell and so I can do the things that I need to do. Buy boats, fix boats, fix nets, or whatever else I need to do. So there's enough data out there to believe that John and his family actually were entrepreneurs in the fishing industry. Now, I don't know if they were... I don't know what the name of the fish stick, St. Paul's or Mrs. Paul's fish sticks. They, they, they were just good business people they believe then that probably because fish was so important to the jewish culture that they would then be the ones supplying caiaphas and the jewish leadership with the fish that they needed another answer is that they believe that perhaps john's mother was related to a qualified genealogy that would permit john To follow a priestly line, not that he was a priest, one Josephus thinks he was, I'm not sure, but we do know this, that he too would have access at least on a friendly basis. So whether through religious means, because he was of a priestly background, or business ways, somehow John was allowed to get up close and personal with Caiaphas and what was going on, but Peter was not. Now, I always scratch my head because Peter too is involved in some of that fishing, but it seems like John was the head honcho, head hog at the trough, we might say. So let's go back to the passage. So Peter is now on the outside and he's looking in and John then comes to pick him up. And the story begins here again. It says, Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of the disciples, are you? Actually, in the Greek, it's not like a real, I don't know, are you really? It's like, it's a fact. You're not also one of those, aren't you? You're, you're one of those disciples out there. Now, she already knew, I'm sure, that John was, because they all kind of hung together a lot. But what are you doing in here? How do you get in here? And notice what uh, Peter does. Three times in this passage, and if you want to have your pens ready, mark it. He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the other officers were standing there having made charcoal fire. That tells me again it was at night because it probably was warm enough during the day. And Peter was also with them and standing and warming himself. Peter had a couple of options. He could get up close to these guys and be identified again or he could be off by himself and be identified because he's standing all alone and nobody would stand all alone unless there's something going on. Who is that stranger standing over there? So he chose to get around the group and of course that brought in another question. And so now Simon Peter standing warming himself. These guys then said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? Implying, aren't you one of those disciples? Kind of implying, yes, you are. And he denied it again and he said, I am not. And then one of the slaves of the high priest, being also a relative of one of those who had, his ear cut, uh, who had Peter cut off his ear, kind of, this guy was really knowing who he was. He really recognized who Peter was. And he said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Meaning the slave was in the garden as well, of the relative. And he says, I wasn't. He denies it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Now, if you will, let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit from a personal level, if you don't mind. When I think of what Peter was doing, I know we want to beat up on Peter. I know we want to look at him and say, well, "What a what a denier he was what a what a coward he was and, and there's some truth in that remember what I said swashbuckling wielder of a sword over here and then why all of a sudden he deteriorates to such a coward that not once not twice but three times publicly he denied not just by his actions but his very own words he's denying that he has anything to do with Christ now what would bring him to that level I got thinking that Peter's probably not a lot different than I am now I've kind of walked with the Lord, and I don't mean I walked physically with Him, but I've been saved since 1966, and there have been periods of time that uh, significant periods of time where I was really taught by the Lord. And I don't mean I heard God's voice, but I sat down and I studied His book here. How many times I preached through the Scriptures and. How many times I went through, through the original languages and how many sermons and seminars and Bible teachings and classes. I have an earned degree in this and I love theology and all of that. So God's teaching, I have all of that. And then I can't help but think of the times as here I am and I've had all the apologetics necessary and I know all the truth and I preach how you guys need to be strong. How many times I'm on an airplane and I have a seat that's empty next to me and I'm thinking to myself, oh Lord, please don't have anybody sit next to me. I don't want to talk to them. Now, that's horrible to admit to you, but that's reality. So I can go from a very courageous defender of the faith, especially when I have a microphone in front of me and plenty of distance to run from the crowds that they get unwielding, when the reality of it all is when I'm up close, am I really going to take a stand for Christ? Why would that happen? I'm submitting to you three that I think are very real in my life, and I think these are real issues that Peter was dealing with at this very time. And I'd like to see if they're the same with you. Then I'm going to offer to you and to me a solution that strengthens me when I go through these times when I have been courageous and when I'm not courageous, why I'm that way and then how I can change it.